Now we're continuing our series, and that series is on the Apostles' Creed. We've had, I think, in the first few weeks just to give us an overview of it, and just as a reminder, the purpose of the series is that we want people to know what the essential doctrines of the Christian faith are. The two key ideas that we'll keep coming back to are these are there are essential beliefs and that God's people are called to seek unity while simultaneously embracing diversity within the big C church of Jesus. We said this, we believe is more important than I believe because I believe I can get off on tangents fairly easily, but we believe is something that has been historically rich and true and the churches throughout the ages have affirmed over and over and over again these truths. We can rest assured in these truths. Todd said, we can't just know about God in our heads. We must encounter him in our hearts. I decided not to add anything to that, but to make that my statement last week as well. Today, we start in on the person of Jesus. We keep moving along in this Apostles' Creed, trying to get across what it is that the Scriptures are saying. So here's the main point of today. If you walk away with nothing else, please um, walk away with this and then trying to embrace it and then live it out. We can't just know about Jesus in our heads. We must encounter him in our hearts. The same is true of the Father as it is the Son. It is easy for us, and especially in today's message, because there's going to be a certain level of academia to it. Not that I'm going to get technical and give us some weird terms that only morons like me use. We're going to speak in simple language, but there's a tendency to make it just sit up here exclusively. And that the danger is that when we say, when I believe, what we mean is I think, as long as I think it, then therefore I must be living it. And remember what the scriptures say, that even the demons believe, give intellectual assent to truth, but they have no actual relationship with God. It is not good enough for us to know in our heads. We must encounter him in our hearts. And so I just want to start with a question to you. Do you remember, if you've been walking with the Lord for a number of years, do you remember what it was like when you first began your pilgrimage with him? Do you remember how sweet and simple it was? Were things particularly complicated for you in your spiritual pilgrimage? Or did you just say, I don't know a lot that's going on, but I do know this. The person of Jesus is real. And I walk with him, and I talk with him, I listen to him, I meet with him. And when I'm burdened, I just take my burdens over to him. And when I'm joyous, I take my joys over to him. The walk that you have with Jesus must remain that simple. It will grow in depth and intensity, but it must forever remain simple. Don't overcomplicate the faith. Just maintain a simple walk with Jesus. Now, we'll get caught up in what we may perceive to be some of the more nuances. Don't, don't get going down a rabbit trail. The main thing must be the main thing, and Jesus is the main thing. There is no Christianity without Christ. And we'll see here in just a moment why it's essential that we believe these things about him. But I, I, I don't want us to leave this morning by walking away going, man, I got some good notes on there. I got some good references. I'm certainly, David, now thinking more biblically about the Apostles' Creed and yet miss this week meeting with Jesus. That would be the greatest tragedy of all. To learn some more truth but miss who the, the truth points to. So I don't know what your walk with Jesus looks like, but I would challenge you to, to do this. 
um, uh, find time throughout each day in which you can just spend a little time dialoguing by listening to him as you read his word and by talking to him as you pray. Take just a portion of each day. Listen to him and talk to him and develop your relationship with him through two-way communication. Hello. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 16. This will be the first passage that we spend a little bit of time in. Now, we're not going to be parking in any one passage this morning. We'll spend a little bit more time in two or three, and then we're going to just reference several in here to, to get us through what the Scriptures are saying about Jesus. In honor of God's words, would you stand as we read from Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read verses 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may be seated. What do the Scriptures principally teach? When the Apostles' Creed says that I believe in Jesus Christ, what is the Apostles' Creed saying? What is it summarizing for us in the Scriptures? I believe in Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see is this title, Christ. What does Christ refer to? It refers to him as being the Messiah. What did the Messiah do? The Messiah saved. The Messiah redeemed. The Messiah came in and put back right or made right what was wrong. You may or may not be watching uh, the, the newer version of this, a show called Quantum Leap. It's a new one on uh, NBC. It's a rerun there. I will forever hold Quantum Leap up as one of the greatest sci-fi television shows ever made. Now, I'm one of three people in the world who believe that. Great, great program. There's a little tagline in it, in which what he was doing was bouncing around in time and space throughout his lifetime, except for that one particular time when something went wrong, and we don't know what happened in the space-time continuum. But he bounces in, in his own in time, and he's to make right what once went wrong. Would we all not love to have do-overs? Would you not like to have a do-over? Would you not like to have your brain at this age go back into your 15-year-old body? How different could your life look for the better? How much more good could you accomplish if you could take your brain right now, put it in your 15-year-old body and say, these are the things that I should value. These are the things that I want to pursue, etc." Jesus made right what once went wrong. It didn't undo all the things of the past. What it did was Jesus took on all of the punishment for it. Now listen, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, they are seeing this accurately, but what they are seeing when he asks them the question, when Peter tells them, you're the Messiah, what they're thinking is something different than what Jesus was going to do because they thought Jesus was going to make all of the wrongs, meaning politically, their, their status in the world, et cetera. He was going to make all that right, and he was going to elevate them above all other peoples on the earth. And Jesus says, I'm going to do all that. It's just in a spiritual sense. I'm going to elevate you so that you might be rightly related to God, and you'll maintain your status here on earth. 
Now, eventually he's going to come and he's going to lead a government. The government's going to be on his shoulders. It's all going to be done underneath. It is going to be carried out perfectly to a T, exactly like Jesus wants it. But that's coming later. That's when he comes again. He came the first time to redeem us, to save us, to be the Messiah, to be the one that we could look out to and say, ah, thank you. I believe in Jesus Christ. What does this passage tell us? It tells us to me that Jesus is a personal as well as a corporate Messiah. Please hear this. Jesus saves the sin of all of God's people. He redeems us from the sin of all of God's people. He took the punishment for all of God's people on himself. But has it dawned on you yet how much he has saved you from? How much help do you need in your parenting? How many times have you confessed to your spouse? How many times have you gone back to your closest friend? your classmate, your business partner, your neighbor. How much has Jesus redeemed you from on a personal nature? He is the Messiah of the world. Of all who will come to him by faith, he is capable of taking on every bit of sin. But how aware are you of how much he has absorbed yours? Do you know why I believe it's really important for us to confess our sins regularly to God? is not so that we can get beaten down. It's so that we will have a, a much better understanding of how magnificent and amazing His grace really is. If I think I've sinned this much, I will need a Savior this large. If I think I've sinned this much, I'm going to need a Savior this large. If I am overwhelmed with my sin, I will likely be overwhelmed with my Savior. So confess. It's okay, by the way. If you're surprised at how jacked up you are, it's all right. Come and talk to me. You'll feel better about yourself. I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what Peter says here, he asks him, what about you? Who do you? Now, Peter then says, you are the Christ of God. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus answers him and says, this statement that you made right here, you are the Christ of God. I'm going to build my church around this whole statement right here. What is that statement? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the Savior. The church, big C, is built around this. Some of our friends, I think, mistake this, this passage and apply it to the person Peter. I think it's, it's rightly meant to be at the confession of Peter. Our whole church is built on Jesus. It's not built on programming. It's not built on giftedness. It's not built on talent. It's not built on music. It's not built on preaching. It's not built on praying. It's not even built on the word itself. The church is built on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church is built on Jesus because the church is about Jesus, because Christianity is about Jesus. I hope that you are improving in your morality. It's a good thing for the world. But the point of the church is not to help you in your morality. The point of the church is to point you to Jesus. 
Your morality will take care of itself when you get connected with Jesus. First thing we need to know is that Jesus is Christ. The second thing we need to know is that he is Lord. We just made reference to that. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We referenced this last week. We want to look at just a tad bit more under the hood. This one, Colossians 1 verses 15 through 18. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." He is the image of the invisible. Only God can represent God accurately. He has given the world clues in making people in his image, but only God can fully represent God. So it says Jesus is the image of the invisible, that which whom we had never seen previously before, we now got a chance to see in Jesus. Now, we don't have a picture of Jesus. Rather, we have his life. We know what he was like. We know what he did. We know what God is like because of the person of Jesus. And then it says he's the firstborn. Don't think of that as an actual childbirth. He's the first in the order of those who are going to redeem, of those who did everything that was necessary. Jesus did all the work. It says that he is the head of the church. It's his church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the Presbyterian church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, or any other church. It's Jesus' church. He is the head over it. He is Lord over the church. It says all things were created by him. It says all things were created for him. It says that he holds all things together. And then it right there at the end says that in everything, in every facet, every aspect of life, Jesus might be preeminent, meaning that it is all about him, your life. Is it all about him? That in everything, in the McNeely home, he might be preeminent. And I have to confess, he's not always preeminent in our home. That's my fault. He's not always preeminent at Wildwood. That's our fault. He's not always preeminent in any aspect. Of, but this is our desire. Oh, God, would you make this true that, Jesus, you would be preeminent. I used to pray a prayer every, before every time that I would get up to, uh, to speak and uh, I've gotten away from it as years have gone on. It's not for reasons of me forgetting, et cetera. There's other prayers that I'm praying um, in addition that are similar. But the, the old prayer used to be just simply this, God, today, for the next few minutes, get me out of the way so that you might be in the way. That's our posture in life. At work, God, get me out of the way so that you might be in the way. In my marriage, God, get me out of the way so that you might be in the way. God, in my parenting, get me out of the way so that you might be in the way. In my neighborhood, God, get me out of the way so that you might be in the way. In class, on the ball field, wherever it is, in all things, Jesus, I want you to be preeminent. That's what we're saying when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Christ, he is the Messiah, he is Lord, meaning that he is in charge of all. He is preeminent in all. Third thing about Jesus, we know from the, that we see summarized in the Apostles' Creed is that he is God. It's when it tells us that he's God's only son, when it tells us that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew chapter 3, it says this, this is God speaking about Jesus at his baptism, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Paul and Titus says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Now, what it does not mean is this, is that the Father and the Son are one person. They are one God, but they are two people. I don't understand that. I can't explain that. No cute illustration for you. Nothing to make you smile and laugh that you'll walk in and go, yeah, that's a pretty good illustration. I got nothing for you. They are, not two, they are not one person. They are two people, but they are one God. Matthew chapter 8. I want to sit here for just a second. I'm sorry. I lied to you. Matthew chapter 1. The birth narrative says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son and called his name Jesus. Now, just recently, uh, some more research uh, came out on this. Uh, Ligonier's uh, put together um, a survey, and we just learned that almost half of the evangelical church, evangelical, not liberal, half the evangelical church does not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Meaning churches like ours. Now, why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? Because if he was not, he is not God. Now, why is it important that Jesus is God? What's the big deal if he's not God? Because only God can live the perfect life. And only God can take on a sacrifice on himself that would be sufficient for all of mankind. If you were to have the most noble of intentions and say, you know what, I'm willing to die for everyone in the world. I'm willing to take on everyone's sins and God, would you put the punishment on me and I'll spend the rest of my eternity even separated from you, God, so that all might be saved. That will be a wonderful thought. That will be a a great motive on your part. However, you are woefully insufficient to do that because you are not perfect. 
Only someone who is perfect can take on the sin. So if Jesus is not God, then you and I are not forgiven. Our sin remains on us. So that's why it's important that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a woman who had not yet known, scripture language here, her husband, until after she gave birth to Jesus. Jesus was not only God, he was also, I'm sorry, is not only God, he is also man. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled, he dwelled among us. John 4, 6, I'm just going to give you three aspects that the scriptures point to about Jesus' humanity. John 4, 6 says that Jesus was tired. Matthew 4, 2 says that he was hungry. And John 19, 28 says that Jesus was thirsty. All things that are true of people. Now, what's the big deal if Jesus is not man? I mean, because the God part's what we really want, correct? We want the forgiveness of sin thing. We're all in on that. We want to spend the rest of our eternity with God rather than separated from him. So what's the big deal if Jesus is not a man? In short, according to Eric Raymond, the answer is Jesus had to be a man so that he could identify with us, suffering in our place and sympathizing with us in our weakness. If he is not a man, then Jesus never will understand. Hear me. This is the part that we must lean into into Jesus. Jesus knows how to sympathize for us because he gets it. If you have gone through something difficult in life and you come upon someone who has gone through the same level of difficulty in life, similar circumstance and experience, there's somehow or another an immediate connection that's there between the two of you and there's just a way that you breathe and say, ah, she gets it. He gets it. If Jesus is not a man, then we're just simply praying to a God in the cosmos and the sky with someone that really isn't going to understand. This is where I fell in love with Jesus. Going all the way back into 1989, trying to figure out how to get sober, this is where I fell in love when I began a simple journey with Jesus and I began to bring everything in my life simply to him. My joys, my fears, my concerns, the highs, the lows, I just brought it to him. With this simple, oftentimes even naive faith of just believing that he was going to be present and listen and that he wanted to talk. And so when I would pray in those early days of my spiritual pilgrimage, I would actually pause for a little bit and I would listen to hear what he had to say. Now, I never heard an audible voice that came out from heaven. That would have been cool. Never heard an audible voice. I just got this sense deep inside of me, this still small voice that Jesus was communicating. Now, the more familiar I got with the scriptures, the more scripture I would get a sense that he was burning into my heart to talk to me. I don't know what you are experiencing in life. Right now, you may be in your teenage years and just wishing that mom and dad would stop talking. Just let you be. 
Or you may be in your 60s just wishing you had one more conversation that you could have with mom and dad. You may have just lost four competitions in a row, be it an individual competition or a team competition, and you may be the lowest of lows, or you may have just finished winning back-to-back championships. I want you to know that Jesus understands what it's like to win and to lose. Jesus knows what it's like to invest and to not be invested into. Jesus knows what it's like to talk and have no one listen. Jesus knows what it's like to listen and have no one heed his counsel. He understands a spouse that does not return his love. He understands a friend that runs away, and he understands a father that turns his back. He sympathizes with our weakness. He forgives our sins. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to face the difficulty of the world. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed unnecessarily. He knows what it's like to love someone, to give something to someone, to invest into someone, and they don't even say thank you in return. Jesus knows what this is like. So today, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, wishing mom and dad would shut up or wishing that you could talk to them again, wishing that you could somehow find a way out of this situation or finding a way into this one, realizing that your father has turned his back or a friend has betrayed you, wherever you are, Jesus gets it. And he is the only one who can draw near to you and do something in the depths of your soul that is lasting and eternal. Others can provide some level of temporary relief as they come around you and support you and love you well, but they will never, ever do for your soul what Jesus will do. So try him. If you've been walking with him for years, just keep walking. If you've been hanging around church for quite some time, not really knowing about this whole Jesus, try him. Taste and see. I promise you, you will find that the Lord is good. Close by simply just giving you this. It was some words that were penned by a guy named Graham Frederick. I'm not even sure how long ago, 20, 30 years, um, I lose track now. He says this, For the joys and for the sorrows, for the best and worst of times, for this moment, for tomorrow, for all that lies behind, fears that crowd around me for the failure of my plans, for the dreams of all I hope to be, the truth of what I am, for this I have Jesus. For the tears that flow in secret and the broken times, for the moments of elation or the troubled mind, for all the disappointments or the sting of old regrets, All my prayers and longings that seem unanswered yet, for this I have, Jesus. For the weakness of my body, the burdens of each day, for the nights of doubt and worry when sleep has fled away, needing reassurance, and there will start again a steely-eyed endurance, the strength to fight and win. I have, Jesus. My prayer, above all other prayers, is that you, will not just know about Jesus in your heads, but that you will encounter him in your hearts because you will never regret it.